Welcome to Podcats. Welcome to Podcats, the special bonus episode. I'm Dan. I'm EJ. We hope that you all are doing well wherever you are. Um, in case you couldn't tell by the sound quality, we are still <laughs> quarantined um, in separate parts of Connecticut at the moment. Dan is really angry about the sound quality, if you couldn't tell. But here we are. Um, we've been thinking about cats a lot, or at least I have. EJ, what have, what has your uh, quarantine experience been with cats? Actually, it's been significantly reduced. Really? Um, yeah, I think in large part because my son has moved on to this um, Disneyland sing-along videotape. That's what he wants to watch every day and not cats anymore. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I kind of miss it, to be honest. Yeah, you should like remind him that it exists. I think that would be problematic, but maybe. I thought when we were on Zoom the other night that I heard him ask to watch Cats. Well, because he knows he, whenever he sees you, he associates you. <laughs> that makes me so happy. Of course he does. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> he always that wants to talk so to you about Cats whenever he sees you. That's true. He does always talk to me. Although, that last time I saw him, he asked me if I knew about soccer. What what did you say? I forget what you said. You said yes, right? I said yeah. I, I act. I you know, acted exactly like I act with every other uh, man who asked me if I know about sports. I just bullshitted my way through it, and they believed me. <laughs> that thing with the ball, yeah, of course. Sure, soccer, yeah, baseball, yeah. Okay, I know that. Do men typically ask you about sports? Yeah, for sure. Re- like, what do they say? What is that like, conversation? They you know, they just ask, they talk about sports and assume that I know about it as a fellow uh, straight man. Little, little do they know that I know a lot more about uh, Angela Weber than I'll ever know about, uh, you know, LeBron James. But it's very easy to bullshit. You just, you learn one player's name. You say like, oh, LeBron. And then that could be a good thing or a bad thing. And they all, they all of a sudden think that you're a sports fan. Who's, who's a Yankee? Do you know a Yankee? A current Yankee? Yeah, pop quiz. Oh, God. Some, Pretend some, I'm a straight man. This is, this is a bad... Uh, don't put me on the spot like that. All right. Well, should we... we judge? Should something judge? Aaron Judge, yeah. He's Aaron Judge. So that's what you do. You just go, oh, man, how about Aaron Judge this year? And it doesn't matter what he is. Like He could be injured. He could be doing well. He could be doing badly. The other person talks, and then you agree... All of a sudden, you know about sports. It works. It's worked so far. All right. Well, let's let's get back to the topic at hand, which is Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh huh. Who, by the uh, way, has been very active in his quarantine. He he has. Have you been keeping keeping abreast? Yeah. Uh. Yeah. I've been getting targeted ads on my Facebook. Uh. With really? his with his uh beautiful face come peering at me from the piano. <laughs> and. He's been doing like sing-alongs, I think. Yeah, I've seen on Twitter. I haven't seen all of them. Um, he doesn't just, sing, but I think it's like he's playing piano, and you are supposed to sing along. Yeah, I I got mad and I stopped watching them because I saw he did Memory and he didn't sing along with it. And he also said like as a preamble, like nobody sing along to this because you'll just embarrass yourself. Okay, here we go. <laughs> what a dick. <laughs> And I thought I was offended by that, honestly. That's yeah, that's uh, that's slightly offensive. Like, does he think does he really think 
that like he has better shit to do right now than to listen <laughs> to a bunch of people on Twitter. Like everybody is doing nothing. Like he's he's bored. not even listening. Like come on. Like he's it, not. It's not like he can hear it. All all it is is he's giving us a karaoke track played by the composer so that we can screen memory in our quarantine, which is honestly like something we all need right now. I think he just didn't want people to record themselves singing it and send it to him, which like, honestly <laughs> would happen. So of course that would happen. Yeah, like all the theater assholes on Twitter would do it immediately. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like, like with the best vibrato they can muster, and that sounds terrible. So I um, guess. Speak, I- speaking of which, I don't know if I'm allowed to bring up this name on uh, this podcast, but Stephen Sondheim, there's a big tribute for him, virtual Zoom tribute on Sunday. Oh, there is. Oh yeah. With who? It's all uh, all star cast. Patty. Pat. Oh yeah, Patty. Um, Bernadette. Bernadette, I think so. Mandy. I don't know about Mandy. I hope so. I mean, who knows? That's the thing. It's like now that we're all at home, you can get all these people in the same event. We can't talk too much about Sondheim in this podcast. Why not? Because it's, uh, it's Angela Weber's rival. It, are they rivals? I mean, kind of. You know, They're rivals in the sense that ALW is probably richer. Well, I mean, I think if they are rivals, then it's the kind of thing where like, Sondheim is ALW's rival, but ALW is not Sondheim's rival. Um, I disagree. I think that Sondheim, like Sondheim, is obviously more what better respected in the arts community, right? Yeah. Like highbrow, like like you know people who think of themselves as like cultured, like Sondheim. Irrefutably. But ALW made a lot more money, I think. But I do you think that Sondheim cares about that? I don't know if he cares about that. Like, does you don't think he cares a little bit that like none of his shows have run that long? I'm just saying. I think I think that ALW probably thinks more about Sondheim than Sondheim thinks about ALW because I feel like ALW. Look, all artists crave is like respectability from their peers. You know, like above anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And I think that ALW probably falls into that category too. I will say that, um, what event was this? It was like earlier in the quarantine, there was some kind of musical theater event that I was watching. And um, they had, I think Angela Weber and Sondheim, if their birthdays aren't the same day, they're like very close to each other. Mm-hmm. And this event was right around their birthdays. And um, which was supposed to be when company opened, I think. And, oh, sorry, uh, RIP. Yeah, rest. I know. Well, not RIP yet, but yeah. I mean, we'll fucking see. But um, anyway, so they like they had each of them sing "Happy Birthday" to each other, and Angela Weber was like, "Happy birthday to my absolute my greatest influence in the musical theater, like Stephen Sondheim." And then he like played. He sang a little bit of "Happy Birthday" with like a. It was like maybe an inside joke, some kind of weird melody that I didn't really get. And then um, Sondheim, the video of him was him washing his hands and singing happy birthday to you to Angela Weber, like as a joke about hand washing and singing the happy birthday song. Mm-hmm. So I don't know really what that means, but I will say that Sondheim's uh, happy birthday to Angela Weber was just him seemingly <laughs> ridding the Angela Weber germs off of his hands. I wouldn't read that into it. 
It's just seeing them side by side. It was like Andrew Weber went out of his way to say how much of an influ- influence Sondheim was, right. and Sondheim was just like making a joke out of it. Well, I mean, yeah, Sondheim definitely doesn't respect Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> I don't think so. No, oh my God, no way. No way does he respect him. I don't think so. I mean, he should. In- well, I wonder I wonder if ALW, because he is a good deal younger, so I wonder if he um, ever reached out to Sondheim as a mentor, because so many composers have, and apparently Sondheim really, like, he's the guy who like will respond to your letter. If you write him a letter and like ask him a musical question, like Lynn manuel Miranda has talked about that, like writing. I think he showed Sondheim like many early drafts of Hamilton, if not in the Heights, like, and Sondheim has always given a lot of advice to many young composers, but not ALW. Well, I wonder, all I'm saying is that I wonder if ALW at any point thought to reach out to him or if they were, too close in age or just like ALW was too successful when he was so y- too young and on different continents. I, you know, I just, I wonder. I want to know what Steven Sondheim thought of the Cats movie. Well, I think, didn't we talk about that in the previous episode about whether he watched it or not? We definitely talked about whether Trump watched it. I don't know if we talked about <laughs> Sondheim. I know what Sondheim would say. What would he say? Well, Sondheim's big thing is what I, is one of my, main complaints with the cats movie which is that the shows need variety right that's like his number one thing piece of advice like you need if you have a slow song you need a big a fast song or you need a lively song and then you have a dance number then you have it needs to be always always variety and that's i've heard lin-manuel miranda who i don't even love that much whatever but like i have heard him talk about getting that advice from sondheim um can i go on a quick lin-manuel miranda tangent sure I just need to tell you this because I saw this tweet today. So apparently on Lin-Manuel Miranda's website, there's a store section and it's just like pages and pages and pages of framed photos of Lin-Manuel Miranda. That doesn't surprise me for a second. <laughs> it's a, I doesn't guess doesn't surprise me for a second. But okay. anyway, it's like, I, I think of Angela Weber, like you read his book. So answer me this, like, uh-huh. Is Andrew Lloyd Webber, did he ever even set out to be in musical theater? Like, is he influenced by the lineage of musical theater? Yes and no. I mean, he's he has more classical roots than anything else. Is That's what I, I thought. It was like classical and rock. Yeah. And when he met Tim Rice, Tim Rice sort of like brought the rock influence. So I right. think that's more where they diverge than anything else. I think it's more just the genesis of their styles is so completely different. Yeah, because Sondheim is a literal like he, descendant of the musical theater royalty. Not 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 uh, biologically, but just like in terms of who he studied with and who he was mentored by. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like like that's his tradition. He also had classical training with Babbitt, I think, but like like contemporary classical training. But that's like a completely different thing than Andrew, who had like this more traditional training. Like knew about no, he knows a bunch about like opera and shit. And then went on to write rock opera. But you think that Sondheim's beef with Cats would be that it doesn't have enough variety? Well, I think his beef with the movie would be one of his big beefs. Would be one of my big beefs, which is that there's all these moments where there's like ten slow songs in a row. Right. Which which brings us to our topic of the um, podcast today. Exactly. <laughs> um. So we each finally did it and purchase the Cats DVD or really iTunes with the DVD features um, this week. 
Um, Boy, and what a ride. What a ride. Um, uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners know already, but this... we were late to the game. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but listen, <laughs> we finally did it. We were tre- <laughs> we were treated to our different corners of Connecticut and we watched these, these DVD extras uh, in which, if you don't know, Tom Hooper does an enti- entire commentary by himself over the whole film. And there are a bunch of little featurettes about the behind the scenes some of which answered a lot of the questions and didn't answer a lot of the questions that I think we had in the earlier episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, do you want to start with the commentary? Yeah, I think let's start with the commentary. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask you was um, when you think it was recorded. Okay, yeah. Um, I think it was recorded um, between... Two and six weeks after the movie was released. Do you sort of, do you get the sense, does it sound like a man dejected? Like, like what is, what is sort of. Yes. It It sounds like a man dejected to me. Yeah. He sounds like an alcoholic the whole time, honestly. (laughs) He is. (laughs) Um, The whole time. I think I texted this to you earlier, but the whole time my, my insecurities about having a podcast were kind of uh, erased by his, (laughs) <laughs> his demeanor over that commentary because it was honestly not super fun to listen to. No, it wasn't. It was really ponderous. Like it, he didn't, he didn't sound depressed. Like I'll say that I'll, it wasn't, let me, let me rephrase. It, it wasn't like boring so much as it was just like kind of sad, I guess. It was like, sad. It sounded labored to me. Like he, like he knew this is something he had to do, but he had just dealt with two to six weeks of people calling this the worst movie of all time. Okay, so what's what's your evidence for that? From the well, track? I know it came after the after the New York premiere, right? Because he mentions he mentions the New York premiere in the commentary. That's my own. That was my only clue. That was one clue, and the that's the that is I think the only clue, and mm-hmm. then the other yeah he mentions that Ian McKellen lapping up milk got the biggest laugh at the new york premiere right and then i think my my only other evidence is just a guess which is his demeanor seems a lot different in the production videos which were clearly filmed while they were still in production mm-hmm. than it does in the commentary you know what actually now that i think about it he does repeatedly this was one of my biggest takeaways of it is how often tom hooper basically subtly makes the argument that this was the intended effect all along. Yes, yes. Throughout the commentary track. Yeah, through all the time. Yeah, like like um, the one I remember is when James Corden, uh, you know, during Buster for Jones, he has that little improvised aside that Dan hates, I think is fine, um, where he says, so why don't we go get the other cats? And Tom Hooper is like, oh, it's a it's a little winking aside because it's sort of like he's acknowledging that they're half humans, half cats, half yes. cats, half humans. Yes. That was that was one moment that I remember. But there was another moment too. Well, okay, yeah, there were there were a bunch of them. I I, I can name a couple of them right now. I think that uh, he talks about Rum Tum Tugger, the how um, Rebel Wilson's. Uh, little like improvs and asides like 
cut into the music and ruin the flow of the music. Yeah, it's so stupid. And he sort of addresses that and he's like, yeah, well, it has like a, a stop and start sort of uh, feel to it, the song anyway. So I thought it was totally fine to stop it and start it and put these other things in there. And also he blames the trap beat on Nile Rodgers. Did you see that? Did you, did you catch that? Yeah, I didn't know it was Nile Rodgers, actually. See, did you? I knew that Nile Rodgers was in the credits. And so I had been wondering for a while how involved he was. And from the way he made it sound, it was that he was just working on Rum Tum Tugger only. Right, yeah. Which makes sense because it's like, we talked about it before, like the music is super funky and then it's kind of ruined by these like interruptions. But also, I think it explains, okay, so it just kind of brings me on this whole uh, <laughs> journey. But so, okay, so so this confirmed that he had the actors singing live on set, right? Yes. And it also confirmed even though he sort of contradicts himself on this, or at least Jennifer Hudson does, but it confirms that, like, at least from memory, it was a pianist and Jennifer Hudson doing the song live on set, not Mm -hmm. to any kind of tempo, and then the orchestra had to deal with that later. Yes. That basically, the idea is that um, the actors would be free to sort of interpret the song as they chose in the moment and they would set their own tempo accordingly. And yeah, and the orchestra would have to deal with that later. Right. So my theory, see, I came into the first episode anyway, or the second, whenever we talked about it, saying that Jason Derulo sounded like he wasn't prepared and didn't know the song. Mm -hmm. I've changed my tune. I think Jason Derulo was doing his thing on set and then Nile Rodgers had to come in later post-production and fit his thing to mm. Jason Derulo's already recorded vocals and performance. And as a result, the rhythm's super weird and it sounds like Jason Derulo didn't know the song. So does this does this go back to, does this sort of explain um, your gripe with the production of the music in the movie? It definitely explains a, a, some of it. A lot of it. Okay. Um, yeah, it definitely explains a lot of it. Um, but yeah, like, look, having, I kind of, I get it for memory. Like, it's the same as Anne Hathaway doing her thing in Les Mis. Um, memory is like, a, it's almost, it's a slow song in the first place. It's not super rhythmic. Um, it does sort of make sense to have that performance by a singer like Jennifer Hudson be live and organic mm-hmm. um, and have the, or- like the, that can, that's doable to have the orchestra come in later. But for something like Rum Tum Tugger or again for like the solos that are in Jellicle Songs for Jellicle Cats or like these other dancers who don't really know how to sing or Rebel Wilson who in one of the featurettes even mentioned, she even, she even almost apologizes for it. Mm-hmm. Did you get, did you catch that? Yeah. She's like, oh, like, um, let me see. I think I actually wrote down her quote. For having her first note be off. She's saying, there are these amazing singers in the film and you have to go up and sing your number in front of them. And then it shows her, like, then there's like a clip of her singing badly. (laughs) (laughs) So again, sorry. I have always maintained that having, you know, for Les Mis, it makes sense to have the actor sing live. For this movie, it made zero sense because the dancing is so strenuous and so intense that there's absolutely no point. Like, it's just going to sound bad. Yeah. And as we all know, in the 1998 filmed version of the show, 
they even in that like which was supposed to be a filmed version of the stage broadway show they didn't sing live yeah exactly and and you even see in the behind the scenes for that we're getting really into the weeds here andrew yeah. lloyd weber um harassing the music director like almost to the yes. point of tears and now that we're talking about andrew lloyd weber mm -hmm. do you buy this oh. new story about taylor swift it's not a new story. It's what they've been maintaining from the very beginning. I hadn't heard this. So I, I didn't, I knew that she wrote it with Andrew Lloyd Webber. I didn't know that it was specifically Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote the music and she wrote the lyrics. Oh, that's what you mean by new story. I mean, what's well, the credit? There's that new story. And there's also that she went over to Andrew Lloyd Webber's house, heard the song, wrote the lyrics on the spot. Yeah, no, that's what they've been maintaining from the beginning. Okay. I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, no, no, no. That's what they've been maintaining. from. But what, what is the actual credit on the song? On Wikipedia, it just says a song by Taylor Swift. Writ by, written by Taylor Swift and Angela Weber. Yeah, so both of them share the credit. They share the credit. I mean, that's how, that's how it usually works. Like, you don't get a different amount of money for, like, writing lyrics and writing music. It's the same thing. Yeah, no, they, they've maintained this from the start, that it was like organic and basically Taylor Swift was like hanging out with Andrew Lloyd Webber and he was like, check out, check out the song that I'm working on for Victoria. And she just kind of like it was an organic collaboration. And no, I don't buy it for a second. No, no, she was angling for an Oscar. I think your theory is right. I think it's, I mean, it just can't, it just doesn't make any sense. And, and she like magically knew like where it should go, where it would go in the storytelling of the movie. Yeah, it doesn't make it. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, um, so I don't buy it. I wanted to ask you. Um, so we've where where we last left off. It was sort of a cliffhanger, um, but we sort of ended the season by establishing Tom Hooper as a villain. Yeah. Um, did the special features cement that for you, or did it refute that for you? Um, <laughs> villain's a strong word, but come on. Well, okay. Well, Rachel Walker said something really interesting last episode, which was that without him, this wouldn't exist. And do I want this to exist? Yes. Um, is the is it all his fault? Yes. I think so. I think he's a villain in terms of like the, the, all the problems of the movie. I think are basically his fault. What do you think? I, I, it really, the, the commentary track really cemented it for me that yeah. he's the villain. Well, two things cemented it for me. One was, has nothing to do with the special features. It was um, that Daily Beast story you sent me about how the special effects artist said that um, Tom Hooper was a tyrant and was making them work like at all hours. Yeah, that certainly paints him as a villain. Right, that certainly paints him as a villain. And... The other thing about the commentary track that I found very difficult to listen to is just how completely humorless Tom Hooper is. Oh my God, I couldn't believe it. He's, he, listen, he's a talented director. I will give him that. Like King's Speech was a really good movie. I, I love Les Mis. Um, not a comedy guy. Not at all. Not a comedy guy. Um, and if, you know, I didn't realize that he co-wrote the script, actually, but that should be evident from the script, which is profoundly unfunny. Oh, yeah. Uh, but during this commentary, he keeps talking about, like, the brilliant comedy of Rebel Wilson. Oh, and, my God. And he also has all of these, like, 
clunky lines that are ridiculous. Um, in that wide shot, the moon is shown as a source of spiritual energy. Um, <laughs> Victoria, the white cat's dance um, during the naming of cats is her, quote, trying to arrive at a meditative state through the kinesis of the body. Um, at one point, he compares cats to the picaresque or the medieval morality play. I mean, this is just not a funny man. No. <laughs> This is not a this is not a guy with a sense of humor, and cats needs a sense of humor. Absolutely, I think like and a good one, because yeah, all these stupid little bits that he added. Yeah, because he also talks about it. he's like oh, and this is this this how about like the way that he tried to explain Rebel Wilson or Jenny Any Dots taking off her digital fur. Is that when he says that it's a parable for the 1930s housewife? Oh yes, he does say that. <laughs> He does say that about 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 her um, kitchen. Oh, she says it. She says it. Oh yeah, you're right. She says it. Yeah, she says it's like a symbol she, for the 1930s, which I rolled my eyes in the back of my head at. He talks about cats as being uh, similar to a medieval morality tale. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. What did you make of that? Because he sort of has this unified theory of cats, which kind of refuted our theory that we posited during the season that it didn't have a vision. What he makes clear. Um, in the commentary track, I think is is that we were wrong. Like he did have a vision. Um, but can you sort of outline like the unified theory of cats that he presents in the commentary, and, like whether well, or not you agree with it? Yeah, his well, I can try. His vision for cats was that uh, basically like obvious. Well, I, I mean, it started from a place of just him not believing that cats, uh, as it is on stage, where they talk, where they are addressing the audience the whole time, would work. Mm-hmm. So then he creates he puts victoria into this uh sort of audience proxy role where the jellicles are taking her in she's abandoned she needs a home and she is sort of like in the course of meeting all these cats learning all these little lessons like rum tum tugger is teaching her this lesson about to how about um not being too uh not indecisive and lustful and all these bad things that he is and then um Buster Jones is teaching her about this other way you can be, which is gluttonous, and you shouldn't be that either. And like all these cats are like teaching her about what you know, the the pitfalls of being cer- a certain way. And so, in learning about all these cats, she is learning uh, her own lessons about morality and how she should be, and then also finding her own family and finding a mother figure in Old Deuteronomy because she had been abandoned and needs to be. Um, and needs to find a home and a find a family. Is that about right? Yeah, right. I mean, what do you make of that moral reading of cats? Well, I just go, I always just go back to the famous story about Andrew Lloyd Webber playing the, the show for Hal Prince. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, Hal Prince, and he's just the man, Andrew, what is this? What is it? Is it about politics? Is it about. Like, which British politicians do do the cats represent? Like, what am I missing here? And Andrew says, Hal, it's about cats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? It's mm-hmm. about cats. That's what it is. And it was always supposed to be about cats. It's light verse. This is not like T.S. Eliot trying to be deep. I also think that that reading of it sort of very conveniently ignores the entire second act of the show. Which is these, like... I could sort of see how like Rum Tum Tugger and Buster for Jones and Jenny Annie Dodd sort of fall into this template of like these 
these are examples of like the kind of cat you don't want to be like these these are like comic examples of like negative personality traits but like that would i don't think that reading really applies to Sybil shanks or to gus right. the Beer cat or um any of the cats that audition to die in the second act I agree. And also, uh, that reminds me of his... He tried to justify changing Mr. Mistopheles' character. Yep. Yeah. Talk about that. So he claims that he changed Mr. Mistopheles into a bumbling idiot because in the show, it seems unnatural to him that Mr. Mistopheles just shows up in the, at the end of the show and saves the day out of nowhere. First but of not, all, okay, go he ahead. doesn't just show up. Yes. <laughs> He, he does just not show just show up. He doesn't just show up. He's in the whole fucking show. He is in the whole fucking show. And he's like very active in the whole show. Look, in my opinion, there are so many ways he could have solved that and still had Mr. Mistopheles be a fabulous character. Like what? Anything. Like Mr. Mistopheles is introduced early and then he gets kidnapped by McCavity and, and he's on the barge and he has to escape from the barge. Or... He, I don't know, like there could, there's all kinds of reasons Mr. Mistopheles could uh, be introduced even further than he is in the show, um, like in the early part of the film and still save the day in, a, in like a fantastic number. Yeah, I think that they, I think that there, there was some homophobic sexist producer out there who was like, listen, we need the girl cat to have a relationship with one of the boy cats. Definitely. Like, who's it going to be? We need, we need a love story, damn it. And Tom Hooper and Lee Hall looked at each other nervously and they were like, Mr. Mistopheles, I guess. Right. Um, terrible choice. Horrible choice. My least favorite, my, my least favorite part of the movie, frankly. Mr. Mistopheles. Yes, the, the straight washing yeah. of Mr. Mistopheles. I agree. And if I didn't know, look, like no disrespect to Laurie Davidson. Like, if I didn't know what Mr. Mistopheles should be, he's a great actor. He did a good, nice job. But yeah. uh yeah, it's it's a true disgrace. You touched on this, but we didn't actually you didn't go into it. Okay. Um how Rebel Wilson's unzipping her skin is a tongue-in-cheek reference to the fact that it's digital fur. Right. Again, I don't think so, buddy. Yeah, I didn't no one's buying what you're selling. Yeah. Um, it's just also like some other excuses he made, like did where he was talking about this this the studio that where they filmed being built for airplane hangers and so that's why it had lower ceilings than usual and that was why they couldn't build the scale like quite as big as it should have been mm -hmm. that was kind of crazy also in the like it does in this in the one of the feature ads, the production designer is explaining how so, she's also trying to excuse why some of the things are two and a half scale and some of them are three times scale and the scale is just all over the place. And she's like, oh, well, like bricks looked crazy when they were three times scale. But then uh, a chair couldn't be two times two and a half times scale because then the cat couldn't jump on it. Like, again, like just trying to um, make these excuses for why the scale was completely off and inconsistent for the entire movie. Yeah, I got the sense that those interviews were done um, while the movie was still in production, though. I do think so, but I think that the people who were involved who weren't Hooper sort of saw, like, on the production end of things, probably saw the writings on the wall. Do you think so? Because I actually had the opposite takeaway from the feature ads. Really? Yeah, I mean... 
so what was really striking to me about the special features just in general is just how obvious it was that like you, you when you see a movie like cats that's so off the wall um then your first reaction is sort of like how could they possibly not have known that it would be like this and i totally see how they didn't know it would be like that yeah okay i i agree and i to be clear, I don't think the actors knew. I don't think the choreographer or the dancers knew. I think specifically the production designer knew. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Do you just get this sort of the sense that she's like very abashed? Yeah. Uh, when she was talking about the scale and like making excuses for why certain things are certain scales. Like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> sort of. It was kind of like, well, she. I wish I could do her, but she had an incredible British accent. But it was kind of like, um, yeah, well, you know, like you couldn't quite have, uh, you know, it was just, yeah, it was abashed. Abashed is a good word for it. Um, the costume designer was exactly as I pictured. Yes, he was. I was going to mention that. I was, I'm glad that you, that you saw the feature that he was in. Another interesting thing was kind of that, like, for example, Stephen McRae. Okay. Tom Hooper says in the commentary, he's not only a fantastic ballet dancer, but he's also one of the best tap dancers in the world. Mm -hmm. Did you catch that? Yeah. I don't think he's the best tap dancer in the world. Listen, I don't know enough about dance. I can't possibly Okay, me neither, but I'm pretty sure he's like a great, one of the best ballet dancers in the world who like also grew up tapping and is really good at tapping, but come on. I did notice that at one point, Tom Hooper says about one of the dancers, he's one of the best dancers in the world, apparently. And that, to me, really spoke to how this guy just had no idea how to film the dance sequences at all or knew nothing about dance. No idea. So speaking of Skimble Shanks, like, did you notice that in the production uh, featurettes, so some of the characters, like Skimble Shanks is a good example. He, from, the, from his entire lower half, is just real clothes, right? Hmm. It's a real costume. Yeah. So his suspenders and his... Uh, shoes are just Stephen McRae's true, like onset suspenders and shoes, not digital, not digitally altered at all. And I realized that the characters who had more real costumes were the ones who looked better. Obviously, like Ian McKellen, almost his entire costume is real. He looks great as a cat. When you say real, you mean like not the, the clothes they wore on set are the clothes that you see in the film. Right. So like Mr. Mistopheles is wearing, like when he's on set, he's wearing his jacket. Well, I'm not sure about him, but maybe. But for sure, like Idris Elba, before he becomes naked, he's wear that jacket I think he was wearing, Ian McKellen's wearing, and Skimble Shanks, which like that's like the coolest looking dancing in the whole thing is, of course, because it's actually like most of what you're seeing when he's tapping is a real person tapping. Right, which goes back to... Our theory that it that, would have worked better with costumes. No, well, yes, that part, that part of it, but also the fact that he, Tom Hooper, was just so reliant on CGI that he wouldn't even consider that it would have worked better with costumes. Oh, you know what occurred to me about Beautiful Ghost? This was just, you know, the story about New York, New York. No, I've never heard it. What is it? Well, New York, New York, you know, is written by Candor and Ab, right? Oh, not not the Taylor Swift song. No, I'm talking about the Candor and Ebb song. Oh, got it. Yeah. So, you know, they wrote it for a film, a Scorsese film. Yeah, the Liza Minnelli movie. Right. And you know that they wrote a song, brought it in, like, I think, like, worked hard on a song, brought it in, 
New York, New York. This is going to be a theme from New York, New York. Brought it in. Played it for Scorsese. Scorsese says, no, that's not it. Mm-hmm. They're so disappointed. Go back and write the New York, New York we know now. And I was thinking about that with Beautiful Ghost. Like, that's the kind of director you need when you're writing a new song for a musical. Why? But you think Beautiful Ghost is like the first effort? Absolutely. I think it's the first effort. And I think it sucks. Yeah. But you like really hate Beautiful Ghost. I think it's relatively inoffensive. I think it's a re- pretty bad song. <laughs> and also, oh, and we can also talk about a uh, Br- British version of Mungo Jerry and Rumpel Teaser. Oh, God. Yes. I've been waiting for you to bring that up. Hooper talking about how it was one of the first songs that Andrew wrote and like and like it was like there's some recording of Andrew Weber playing like three songs from the musical the first ones that he ever wrote and somehow that means that it's good yeah I I didn't understand that at all what was he talking about I think that your interpretation is correct that that was the version that he saw when he was eight and he just can't really fathom that it could possibly be any other way. Right. He listened to the cassette in the car when he was a kid. Yeah. It's my vision. It's my musical. Right. Even though Andrew Lloyd Webber had rewritten the song and ever since he had rewritten the song, that's the only version of the song that anyone's used. And he calls it like, what, what does he say? That it's like a jazzy cabaret number? Yeah, a jazzy cabaret number. And talked about the someone, the big band arrangers they had. It was, ugh. It was a shit number. That's I'm not even like thinking about it. I wanted to say, um, there are so many shots in the featurettes of um, one of your least favorite numbers, Buster for Jones and the making of that. Yeah. And all the cats rolling around in the trash like them shooting that the incredible comedy you mean that tom hooper refers to yeah the incredible comedy that he refers to yeah and that was the one that scene like watching them shoot that was the one part where i was like okay they should have seen this coming because they look <laughs> so fucking stupid <laughs> the actors they they're like they're, they're tugging on like bits of of like fishbone with their teeth and like rolling around in the trash and it's like how could you that is where I victim blame, and that is where I'm like, how could you not have known? Yeah, okay. I can see that. I can see that. But pretty um, much everything else about the behind the scenes, like, it's it's pretty... I, I can think of no other word other than, like, magical to, like, watch. I, I agree. A lot of it truly was magical. And, like, there were moments that you saw them doing it in... Like, you saw the real-life dancers doing it on set yeah incredible and all i can think about is like they built this set this real set and these incredible dancers are doing it and if they had just put them in costume and captured the performances it would have been amazing the mccavity featurette really encapsulated that for me when you saw it when you got to see idris elba do his thing like in rehearsal and stuff yeah, I'm, I was referring more to like just the sheer volume of uh, and that's not even like a super dance heavy number, but like just seeing the dancers like on mass because it's 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 shot in 360. Um, right. So you can really see like the full scope of the set um, and how they shot it and just seeing them like dance while the two principals are performing was it was just kind of staggering it was like wow like just the production value of this this is this was like a true big budget like Hollywood, like he talks about Busby Berkeley at one point um, when he's talking about Jenny Any Dots and how he sort of derived inspiration from that. But that like, 
it that was a moment that was like actually like a true Busby Berkeley like old school Hollywood song and dance number. Yeah, and then they shot it in a way that it's almost completely lost. Yeah, it's so sad. It's so sad when the behind the scenes footage is that magical and the look on the actors' faces because I think that the actors in that space were thrilled. Oh yeah, for sure. And you see that clip of Taylor Swift like on mic telling everyone how much of a good time she's having. Yeah, she was she was in like a lot of the behind the scenes shots. She was really into it it sounded like. Yeah, I I said earlier in the season that I didn't believe that she spent that much time on set. Like I was wrong, I guess. Yeah, it seems like she really or whatever, whether or not she spent a lot of time on set, she was very invested in the project. I think she really did want to work with Tom Hooper. Yeah. Um she auditioned for Les Mis, you know, apparently. And, like, I think she really was, is a fan of Cats, the, the 98 version. And I think, you know, it's like she thought, I think this was going to be a really cool movie. And it could have been. Yeah, again, like, if you were if you had just visited the set and saw them filming the McCavity number, like you're saying, I think that you would walk away thinking this is going to be an awesome movie. Absolutely. Can I play you um, the audio of a quote? from the behind the scenes, from one of the featurettes that I want to talk about. This is Jennifer Hudson. Tell me if you can hear it. Grisabella is a very heavy character because she was homeless. Why was she called the glamour cat? And how much of that is left in her now that she's broken down? (laughs) So, Grisabella, she's a very heavy character because she was homeless. Well, she doesn't say because she was homeless. Because she was homeless. Listen. Okay. She's a very heavy character because she was homeless. <laughs> because she was homeless. So, okay. I just want, first, I mean, look, Jennifer Hudson, good, good on you for committing as hard as you did and trying to get this background, this, this backstory, like, into your head before you performed. But, like... Aren't they all homeless? <laughs> that didn't even occur to me. All the cats are homeless. They're street cats. They're alley cats. I was like, where are you going with this? <laughs> I totally bought everything she was saying. I was like, yeah, she's right. She's Yeah, is she wrong? No, but yeah, no. I mean, she's, they're all homeless. They're all homeless. <laughs> they're all homeless. And I, I mean, I, I know what she means. I just, I just think it's... When you think about it, it's really funny. But she's more homeless for some reason. She's more homeless. Well, oh, and Hooper addresses it in the commentary that he didn't want it to be that she used to be a prostitute, which is what the poem implies. Yeah, and I think that's slut shaming, frankly. Yeah, well, well, the poems may be slut shaming. No, I mean, I think he was slut shaming by not making. Oh, because he wanted. He says he wanted it to be a family movie. Well, the thing, the, the poem is not celebrating sex work. No, for sure. But like, I I think that his decision to sort of erase that part of her past as well. I don't know if I necessarily applaud that. (laughs) Yeah, I I agree, I guess. But (laughs) I just also don't think it's successful because I absolutely think that I, I mean, I absolutely thought that he intended to make her a prostitute. Right. A fallen woman. Yeah. Um, but she was homeless. Why was she <laughs> called the glamour cat? <laughs> and what else did she say? Hold on. Jennifer Hudson's a fucking queen, by the way. I love her. Is a very heavy character because she was homeless. Why was she called the glamour cat? And how much of that is left in her now that she's broken down? 
because she was homeless. Mom, she called the glamour cat. And how much of that is left in her now that she's broken down? So why was she called the glamour cat? How much of that is left in her? But anyway, I guess she went with McCavity and then because she went with McCavity, she was somehow more homeless than the other cats? Yes, because I think I think the implication is that like in this universe, the Jellicle community, like that's the main community for cats and anybody who's on the outside is sort of <laughs> is homeless or <laughs> I don't I don't know. <laughs> anyway it's just it's some food for thought but i do love jennifer hudson i love that she like really committed and tried to figure out what this character's story was did the did the behind the scenes make you appreciate the actor's performances more it did yeah me too it did and the performances came through a lot more when they weren't like covered in cgi everyone except rebel wilson um yeah i agree she sucked she sucked but even James Corden in his way. Yeah. I mean, look, like really like Robbie and Frank Fairchild and Frankie Hayward and like all of those other people, like watching them in the behind the scenes without CGI. It was really cool what they did. Yeah. but And I, even some of the ensemble members. What's the name of the dancer who plays Cassandra, the hip hop dancer? Um, Meta Talley. Yeah. Very cool. But as you have said, the fact that it was so reliant on CGI like it it sort of creates this ambiguity of whether or not you're actually watching the dancers dancing or if it's all cgi exactly and it dehumanizes their performance what did you think of the early cgi test um it looked just like the movie i thought but i was i guess i was wondering that was new information for us i guess and it was like because we had are we're going on the assumption that he hadn't tested this and that's why it was such a failure and why mm-hmm. it was such a problem for him to get the CGI uh, to work in the first place. But I guess he did in some respect test it, right? I thought it looked way better than it did in the movie. Huh. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. So you think he got a really good test, showed it to the studio, and then messed it up somehow? Or the... I, I mean, I don't, I am not a CGI expert, so I can't say this with like definitive authority. But there weren't any fucking costumes in that test. Like, I maybe he just didn't think it was worth trying it with the costumes. Right. Yeah, that's that could totally. Um, I don't know. Totally be true. Or when it came down to that was like one test with one dancer, and maybe when it came down to like getting visual effects companies to, and look, apparently, like this comp these comp there were five visual effects teams in like all around the world working on this. Mm -hmm. So maybe it was just like getting them all on the same page and more, more so getting them all on his page, which apparently was very unclear. Yeah. At the same time, seeing that test, I don't know how you would look at that and be like, Oh wow. Which is what James Corden said. His kids said when he saw it. Well, and Taylor Swift said that, Tom Hooper showed that to her in Nashville or one of them said that they apparently he went to go visit her in Nashville and like showed her that clip like this is what you're going to look like and she was like wow (laughs) how I don't know I think everybody was just too enamored with the idea of like I'm me but I'm a cat because everybody's obsessed with themselves in Hollywood 
Well, I mean, look, it would if if you could see yourself on screen the digital fur technology, wouldn't you think it's kind of cool? Absolutely, but I'm obsessed with myself. Right, me too. Exactly. <laughs> so only people who were obsessed with themselves would be like drawn into the prospects of that. That makes sense. Oh, I want to address one more uh, story that we previously hadn't believed, okay. which was the story of Judy Dench breaking her Achilles tendon in the original cast of Cats. Right, um, and um, Tom Hooper repeats that story. Judy Dench repeats it in one of the featurettes and doubles down, or she repeats it in one of the featurettes, and then Tom Hooper, I think, repeats it and doubles down on it and says that not only that, but she tried to play Grizabella with a limp after she broke her Achilles tendon and then fell off the stage. And only then was Elaine Page brought in. Right. Or Betty Buckley. Who was it Elaine Page or Betty Buckley in the original London? Well, I mean, what do you think? Do you still believe? Do you believe them? Uh, <laughs> I don't know at this point. Hearing Judy Dench say it, it's hard not to believe. Jame, Dame Judy. Look, I think they've had 40 years to settle on a story. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, There's I mean... something enough, you, you can believe it. When I think of her singing Memory, I don't believe it. Exactly. I think they heard her sing Memory, which was They're sort like, of cobbled together at that Dame point. Judy, you're a great actress, but... They're like, oh, we gotta, we gotta figure out. At the very least, I think they were happy that they, when she got injured, they weren't crying any tears over it. Right, right. Oh, we also confirmed that. Um, I think we had this has been an, this had been an open question, but we confirmed that Old Deuteronomy and Gus Theater Cat had decided they had a previous relationship. Right. That is that in, confirmed. In in fact, a choice that Ian McKellen and Judy Dench made. Together. Together as fellow actors. I like that Judy Dench wanted to bring her basket home, but then didn't when she saw how large it was. <laughs> yes. I also liked that Ian McKellen um, was questioned who Jelly Orem was in the original production of Cats and was like, shouldn't I just be singing this song this song by myself? Yeah, that's like, what is their what is their relationship? <laughs> This is a great is a argument. Fair, it's a fair question. What is their relationship? Is Jelly Orm like his nurse? She's his caretaker. His caretaker. Mm-hmm. But I only know that from cats.fansite.wikipedia.com. Oh, so it's so it's questionable uh, whether that's true or not. I, it's not questionable. It's <laughs> gospel. <laughs> I believe she's supposed to be his caretaker. <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, that, that's certainly how they make it seem in the show. Um, but I also understand why Ian McKellen would question who, what their relationship was and it, in a movie setting. Listen, he wanted his own song, and who can blame him for that? And he, he does it better by... Look, it's so great by himself. It's so great. It's a great movie. It, this Watching it again... With the commentary and with the featurettes, like really cemented my belief that it is really not that bad of a movie, objectively. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, watching the co- it's the, the commentary and the featurettes are two separate things. Like for me, watching the commentary, watching Hooper talk about it, listening to him talk about it, didn't necessarily make me think of it as a better movie than I already did. But watching the featurettes made me think of it as a great movie. It didn't make me 
think it was better. And in fact, it sort of cemented some of its flaws, like the humorlessness and and some of the inconsistencies that we've talked about. But it also made me think, I mean, this wasn't a guy who like put a little bit of thought into it. This wasn't a guy who was just, you know, farting this out for a paycheck. Right. It's just his priorities were all were in completely the wrong place and how he was going to tell this story. Yeah, exactly. I also he he commented on that reminded me he commented on memory followed by beautiful ghosts followed by moments of happiness by saying that it was three generations of women. Commenting. Oh, I hated that. Yes. <laughs> Which like, dude, your priorities are not in the right place. Again, this is the musical. Listen to Sondheim, who says that when you have a slow song, you need to ha- counter it with something upbeat. But don't you think that was just trying to justify the fact that like to, I mean look to me moments of happiness is such an easy cut that I feel like that was just an instance of like an actor having enough heft to sort of argue for it being there do you really think Judy Dench argued for that I I don't know if Judy specifically did but I think I think that when you have Judy Dench on set like you don't just use her to sing like a couple lines and have it be like one and done, you know? All right. I mean, sure, sure. But like, again, yeah, it's just, it's just all part of it or, or the, or what he did to Mr. Mistopheles. Like again, like maybe it fits with his, uh, I grand idea for what this story represents to him, but it doesn't make for good theater. Yeah, it doesn't. And yeah. And I think that that's like maybe they should have chosen a director for a movie like this. It would be nice to have a director who's directed a musical on stage and knows how that works. Has he not directed any musicals on stage? Not that I know of. Oh, I meant to ask you. Um, so there's this whole choreography featurette and we've talked about Blankenbuehler as villain. Uh-huh. Uh, so what do you think about that now? Um. Okay. I... One thing I liked was that Tom Hooper at least said Jillian Lynn's name. Right. At least he said her fucking name. Like, res- pay some respect. And mm-hmm. I think B- Blank and Bueller maybe did too. Or like that, something about building, like taking inspiration for her, from her choreography. But um, Blank and Bueller, I think that Hooper didn't do him any favors. Because again, like he did not shoot this movie to feature dance in a way mm-hmm. that features dance. Um, but I wasn't angry at Blankenbuehler during the featurette. Were you? He inadvertently nailed something that I didn't realize I had a problem with that I have a huge problem with. What was that? Um, I, he or Tom Hooper was, were talking about how, um, the choreography mixes the modern dance vernacular with the period world. Um, uh-huh. because the, the film is set in the 1930s, um, supposed to be when T.S. Eliot, uh, wrote his poems, which, by the way, could have fooled me. I oh, have yeah. no fucking clue. There's no clue that it's supposed to be said then. Absolutely or not. Very little. I had no idea what to have. No idea. Could have been the 30s, 40s, 50s, 20s, like yeah. any any time. Um, but the I didn't realize how much it bothered me that there's it's modern dance juxtaposed against this sort of amorphously period world, like a vaudeville theater. Sorry. An abandoned vaudeville theater. Yeah, I didn't realize how much that bothered me. Um, right. And Les Twins 
in particular. I didn't realize how much that bothered me until he said it. It doesn't make any sense. Everybody oh. always talks about the sneakers, the fact that they're wearing sneakers. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. I would really love to see, love to know why the original choreographer was fired. Uh, the original choreographer of the movie? Yeah. Yeah, I would love to know that too. That's one mystery that's left unaddressed. Well, if we can get, look, Robbie Fairchild, if you'll please come on the pod. Uh, yeah, you know, Francesca Robbie was Hayward. not nearly enough. Robbie was not featured nearly enough on the DVD. Oh, yeah. He was barely interviewed. Barely interviewed. Um, oh, we should probably talk about um, Francesca Hayward and how Tom Hooper's in love with her. Yes, he is. He says something like, I remember some kind of quote, like, what was it? Like, I found like something about like, I'm so lucky to have found her. Yeah. He's totally in love with her. He's in love with her. He talks about her constantly. Yeah, he loves her. I mean, so do I. So do I. Yeah, I get it. I'm in love with her. She's perfect. She's beautiful. And she does a great job. She does. She does an amazing job. Um, And every time I watch, I'm more impressed with her. Yeah. I mean, her dance, like for the dancing to transcend CGI the way it did, in her case, is incredible. But he's clearly in love with her. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, it's it's his most forgivable sin. Yeah, probably. Is there anything we didn't touch on? I don't think so. I think that's all I had to say. Is there anything else that you had on, had in your mind? No, I'm just feeling really like emotional and grateful. Um, <laughs> and it, 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 watching it did make me just like really grateful for this movie and the journey that it's taken us on. Me too. I'm I'm glad you brought that up. I I I was it did make me very very grateful. Um because like look, a few months ago, this is what are we in April right now? In November, less than 6 months ago, we hadn't seen this movie yet. We start we knew we would see this movie, but we hadn't seen it yet and we had no idea that this is where we would be in our fandom or that this is where we would be in the world. Um and it's really crazy for these two things to happen at the same time. Like, but I will say that to those of you who have reached out to us and emailed us at podcasts one two three dot com at podcasts one two three at gmail dot com, um, thank you. You're the best. Uh, it's given me so much joy in these very often joyless times to receive those emails and share them with EJ and. Um, yeah, podcasts is like definitely one of the things that is a blight in my life right now. Yeah, it's been a real highlight, as Dan said, during some very dark times. And please, please continue sending those emails. They make us so happy. Yeah, please continue to write podcast123 at gmail.com. Um, it, is a re- a re- it is a real email address. A lot of yeah. you have written in to say, hey, is this a real email address? Uh, it is a real email address. We get the emails. We respond to them. Um, we love them and uh, also don't forget to write us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your uh, podcasts it what we have had a couple of those recently that were really great and really brightened up my day and also like what do you want to see in season two yeah what do you want to see in season two it will happen we don't know when because obviously where we are right now but season two will happen what do you want to see who do you want to see? Who do you want to hear from? What do you want us to talk about? Um, who do you want us to interview? If you want us to interview someone, go ahead and 
tag them on Twitter or, or Instagram or whatever and say, hey, can you be on podcasts? Are there any cats that we miss? We've gotten a couple emails like that. Yeah, we have gotten lots of emails about the cats we missed and cats that we uh, misgendered or cats that we maybe got their sexual orientation wrong, perhaps. Like, there's a lot of emails we've gotten and we, we want to We haven't to misgendered any cats. I know, I'm just, uh, I'm just saying it. <laughs> I would be so embarrassed if we misgendered a cat. I don't think we misgendered a cat. Thank God. Thank God. But we may have. Who knows? Who knows? We might have misgendered a cat. And also, like, look, like, we, we don't know. In every production of Cats, is, Jem- is Jemima always played by a woman? If I misgendered one of the cats from Cats, I would feel worse than if I misgendered a person. <laughs> Me too. Easily. I would feel bad. Oh, and I was also going to say, you know how Jason Derulo complained about them CGIing his package out? Uh-huh. Did you, you saw him in his costume on set. No package. No, I didn't notice that. He's in the featurettes. No package. I mean, look, like it's not like, not that he doesn't have a, I'm sure he has a sizable package. No one's doubting it. It's just the costumes were not designed to be that form-fitting. So do you think those thirst traps on Instagram where you can see it, do you think those are like staged? I don't know. Look, whatever. It, 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 whether they are or not, I don't really care. If, if they're not, great for him. I'm just saying it's not like that. It's not like his package was all over the movie and they CGI'd it out. That's just bullshit. Are you a Jason Derulo dick truther? No, only in the case of the Cats movie. Well, guys, thank you for thank you for joining us through this season. It's been a real wild ride. Thank you so much. Um, we're glad to be back with you just for a little bit, a little bonus. Um, and we will be back soon, either with a bonus or some a new season or whatever it is. We'll, we will be back. So stay tuned. Like and subscribe. Rate and review. Stay safe. Stay safe. Stay home. Stay, stay home. Healthy. Yeah, stay home. Please stay healthy. We love you. Uh, talk to you soon. On next, bye. See you next time on Podcasts.